This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Traditionally, retirement age was 65. Yet in Colorado, nearly a quarter of people that age and older are still working. And that rate is double what it was back in 2000. At the same time, older workers risk losing their jobs because of age. So what's driving people to stay in the workforce? What does it mean for workers old and young? And do employers need to manage differently? Questions we'll pose to Janine Vanderberg. She leads Changing the Narrative. It's a Denver-based campaign to combat ageism. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thrilled to be here. The percentage of older people working in Colorado is up significantly. That's according to numbers the state provided at our request. Why are more older people staying in the workforce longer? So I think there are a number of reasons, and it's a trend not just in Colorado. It's true across the United States. A Gallup poll last year showed that 41 percent of Americans intended to work past age 65. Some of the reasons are purpose. Uh, If you love what you're already doing, you want to keep doing it. And there's no need to abide by an artificial age that someone declared traditional retirement age. And there's a fear, I think, uh, among some of atrophying in some way if you retire. And they're probably right. The research shows that uh, people uh, tend to remain um, healthier and more engaged uh, when they continue uh, working or somehow otherwise being engaged in community. Another reason that people keep working is uh, paycheck reasons. Uh, For a lot of people, they need continued income and there's no reason to retire. And I think for some people, it provides that kind of social connection that we all want. We all meet people. We interact with people at work. And work is an important part of our lives. So the idea of someone saying, well, it's 65, time to retire, seems a little outdated. So this is a question of necessity for some, for sure, uh, and desire for others, and maybe a mix of both. A mix (laughs) of both. Do you think that this also connects to life expectancy? In other words, if we're living longer, naturally, our workforce years would extend? Is that an assumption I can make? I think that's a really fair assumption, and it makes a lot of sense. We know that uh, Coloradans, like people across the United States and across the world, are living longer lives. Uh, For most people, a lot healthier lives. And when a lot of our workforce assumptions were made, average longevity was much less. Mm. So um, we know that um, estimates are people born today are going to live to be 100. And so if you know that, you want to plan for working longer. 65 seems positively sprightly. Thank you. In in comparison. (laughs) Uh, You know, the change is especially dramatic in certain industries. One out of three utility workers in Colorado is now older than 55, Uh, the people who work for, say, Excel or your water provider. In other industries, education, agriculture, transportation, a quarter of the workers are over 55. I guess I'd like to talk with you about some of the misperceptions that you find employers hold about older workers. Great question. So one of the things that we're doing at Changing the Narrative is a business campaign to reach out to employers to deal with some of those misperceptions. Like what? Well, number one, older people aren't willing to learn. And the research shows that's absolutely false. And people um, love to continue learning throughout life. And often what's happening at a business employer level is that they're not being provided with the training. So a smart employer who wants to retain that older workforce is going to make sure that they continue to 
to invest oh, in training. The, employers might actually be creating the situation they're afraid of. In other words, they think this is an older worker. This is a person not interested. I'm not going to invest in them. And it, that becomes reality. Exactly. Exactly. And related to that, we know that sometimes employers won't do that because they are concerned about the tenure of an older employee. They're not going to be around that long. But we know that because people are working longer, average tenure of older workers is actually longer than tenure of um, younger workers in any job. So it makes good business sense. That is, they are less interested in maybe changing jobs? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's interesting. What other misperceptions do you run into? So another misperception is that um, older um, employers uh, cost too much. And what is, again, really smart thinking is to look at what is the salary that you're paying. And if an older worker is willing to work for that salary, then not discounting an older worker about perceptions. Um, There are perceptions that um, older workers Um, are going to miss work, that they're unhealthy. And again, research shows that uh, tenure and showing up at the job is actually stronger among older workers. So the bottom line is making any assumptions about anyone simply based on age isn't helpful to the employer. I think employee. that seems the fundamental point here, that this is based on assumptions. And assumptions are dangerous whether you're making them about a 30-year-old or a 60-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. So take the worker at his or her uh, sort of face value. Exactly. One at a time. Do, do you know what word we have so far managed to avoid using? I am thrilled so far that, okay. <laughs> that we have managed to avoid a word. Very a skillful. Word. Your uh, company trains folks essentially to change their language exactly. around older workers. And you don't like the word Say it. Senior. Okay. You said okay. it, not me. We, we <laughs> spoke to a manager who took your training. Stephanie Knight runs a nonprofit called Senior Hub. It's in the title, uh, which helps older people. Her employees range from 28 to 72. Because I brought the training back to the group, we're just very mindful of the language we use. So senior is in our name, and senior is certainly a recognized term to refer to older adults. But we're very mindful of now using older adults, aging adults. And really just speaking of them in a very positive and affirming way and just being very mindful and deliberate about our language. What's wrong with the word senior? So research by an organization called Frameworks Institute showed that in the minds of the general public, terms like senior, senior citizen, and elderly trigger all the negative stereotypes that the general public holds about older workers. So when we use those words, we ourselves are reinforcing, if you will, those stereotypes. It's interesting. My title here is Senior Host, and it feels uh, like a tip of the hat. But that's not how people are reading that word when it when it is in relation to age, I guess. Exactly. So when it's used in a title, everyone wants to be a senior host, a senior vice president. Uh-huh. But the word senior, um, we just know that in the minds of the general public, triggers a lot of negative stereotypes, especially about not being willing to learn, not being productive, etc. So we are encouraged people to avoid that term. I think that there's a lot of labeling of generations. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got the millennials and Gen X and Gen Y and the boomers. Um, Let's talk about the assumptions we make about how one generation likes to be managed over another generation. Are there big differences that managers should keep in mind if they've got 
say, a workforce that has 20-year-olds and 60-year-olds? So I think generally that generational stereotypes are a little bit dangerous and they make assumptions, um, not looking at the individual. I think the strongest practices in HR are how do you build on the strengths of individuals. But we also know that deliberately creating multi-generational workplaces is a really effective business practice. You bring in that accumulated wisdom that older people have, and as well as uh, some of maybe that uh, younger um, skill and um, ability to collaborate that younger people may be bringing to the workforce. If you deliberately put them together, it's really good for business. And there's research that shows the businesses that do that successfully are more productive and more profitable. But it strikes me again that this is about managing for the individual, not based on age, but based on the whole person. Exactly. Uh Exactly. Okay. Well, that's that's the rosy stuff. Let's get to the other side of this coin, because at the same time that we're seeing stronger employment numbers for older people, new, stunning research shows the ongoing impact of age discrimination. The majority of workers over 50 will be pushed out of their jobs against their will. Do you hear stories like that? I've heard incredible stories like that. So last year, Changing the Narrative did 42 workshops across the state of Colorado and reached about 1,300 people. In every single workshop, there were people who came to me and said, that ageism thing is happening to me. It's happened to my dad. It's happened to my partner. I've been pushed out. So we know there's a lot of really strong evidence. Every time I either do a show like this or there's a newspaper article about changing their narrative, we get tons of calls. More people coming out of the woodwork with their own stories. Exactly. This report came from the Urban Institute in ProPublica. It says that 90 percent of older people who are pushed out of their jobs suffer a significant drop in income. They just never make the same amount again. That's right. And yet... Uh, The official unemployment rate in Colorado is only at 2.4% for those over 65. Why wouldn't we see higher numbers? Because so many people have eventually dropped out of workplace because they've been pushed out. They've tried. Out of the workforce. They've pushed out of the workforce. They've tried again and again to get back in. They've applied for jobs unsuccessfully. They feel that they've experienced ageism. So they literally give up and they're no longer counted in the employment numbers. Ah, so that unemployment number for older workers simply does not reflect the full situation. Exactly. And do you think that older workers being pushed out of the workforce, that that relates to everything we've been talking about, the assumptions that are made about older workers? I think it has a lot to do um, with the assumptions and prejudices that people have. And that's why we're doing a business campaign to let people know the opportunity that older workers present. Let's wrap up with a polemic, Janine Vanderberg. Are you saying age never matters? I'm saying... Age should not be the lens through which someone looks at an individual. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Janine Vanderberg manages Changing the Narrative, a campaign to combat age discrimination. Yemen has been ravaged by a civil war that began in 2015. Fighting and starvation there have claimed nearly 250,000 lives. 
it has also cost Yemen an enormous amount of potential that will reverberate for generations. The UN commissioned a team at the University in Den- of Denver uh, to gauge the social and economic costs of the war. Jonathan Moyer led that effort. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You tried to answer what seems like an impossible question here. What would Yemen have been without a civil war? Uh, Yemen was already, by the way, one of the world's poorest countries before the civil war. And the plight of children is a major focus of your study. What's been the toll on kids? The the, the toll on kids for this conflict has been really significant. Um, we, as a research team at the University of Denver, explored the impact of development in Yemen with the conflict and without the conflict yeah. across multiple dimensions of development. So we're interested in looking at how the economic impacts reverberate through the population, the impacts on malnutrition, the impacts of what had been uh, a, a, a bit of a blockage of trade, um, the impacts of the, the direct fighting across multiple dimensions of human development. Uh, the UN was interested in understanding um, broadly speaking, how the conflict is taking a toll on people's lives. And why did you look so strongly at children? What do they tell us about this story? We we didn't start looking for children as a big kind of impact area in this conflict. We started just kind of trying to do our best job of quote-unquote objectively assessing the impacts. One of the big findings was that the impact on the con- of the conflict on children has been really significant. Um, between 2015 and now, about 60% of the deaths have been of children under five. And those oh are both goodness. direct and indirect. So you can have two kinds of deaths as a result of conflict, people dying in direct uh, armed fighting and people dying because the humanitarian situation has deteriorated to such a point that there's no food. There's no access to clean water or sanitation. And those indirect impacts can sometimes be much greater. And they are disproportionately affecting children, you're saying. Exactly. And in 2019, the kind of high-level finding is that as a direct result of conflict, one child under five dies every 12 minutes. So if the conflict persists through the remainder of this year, then the toll on children is is quite significant. And of course, that has... Uh, repercussions for generations. Yes. I mean, we, the, the, uh, to quote the song, the children are the future. And if, if that's true for a country and children are dying, that very much has to do with the economic future of a place. Yes, exactly. And we, when we assess the broader impacts in terms of how far has the conflict set back development in Yemen, if the conflict ends this year, it, it will have set back development by about 21 years. As the conflict persists across time, it's set back at a faster clip. So if it continues for one more year, uh, human development is set back for 23 years. You're essentially talking about a generation. Exactly. We're talking about a generation. And the long-term impacts on on stunting, which is basically people who lack access to sufficient uh, nourishment at young ages and then they're not able to develop to their full potential, is is huge as well. And these these impacts last for not just one generation, but multiple generations. It's not just a question question of the children who are killed. It's those who survive, but whose development is stunted. Exactly. Okay. And, and therefore, exactly. The, the, the development of an entire country is stunted. So it's, it's sort of literal and figurative. Based on your modeling, how does the war in Yemen 
compare to other modern wars? Uh, yeah, the we had, we did some additional analysis because we knew these kinds of questions would come up. The UN asked us, and I don't, I'm not a UN representative. I, I work at the University of Denver, right. um, but they asked us to take this kind of broader assessment of the 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 development impacts. And one of the questions we knew we would receive was, how does Yemen compare to other conflicts? So we looked at conflicts from the end of the Cold War to the present to try to see um, if they could be grouped into categories based on the severity of conflict. Yemen ranks up there with um, conflicts like the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003, Sierra Leone, um, Liberia, some of these really high-impact, long-term conflicts that, that set back development for generations. You looked at how men and women have been differently affected by the civil war in Yemen. What did you find? We found that women are uh, disproportionately negatively impacted by the civil war um, when the war is ongoing. Uh, this happens in ways that we can model and represent. They um, have had their access to water disproportionately reduced, their incomes disproportionately reduced, access to education and health services reduced as well. Um, on top of that, there are a lot of other impacts of conflict on um, women that are not able to be modeled. The impact of um, um, sexual violence or assault is, is another area that we're not able to model directly, but there's a lot of evidence that this is another area where there's a disproportionately um, severe impact on and women I, in conflict. I think this is true in conflict in general, that women bear yes. the brunt in many ways. In many ways, yes. But of course, men uh, often suffer very violent deaths. Uh, help us understand... It's, it, it, it goes back to that direct and indirect understanding. So you have direct impacts from conflict, so yeah. people dying in battle, and then you have the indirect impacts. And we were able to break down the direct and the indirect kind of more broadly than others had in the past. And we're not able to say exactly the gender breakdown of the indirect mortality, but the gender Im implications of the conflict on development has been something that we found to be significant. An increase in child marriage. That's fascinating because increase of in the child, civil war in Yemen. Exactly. And the, the, I mean, the other kinds of interesting issues related to family planning during conflict. As conflicts persist, you can have short-term conflicts that have uh, a, a re an impact on reducing fertility. But then as conflicts persist, insecurity situations or contexts can lead to increases in fertility as well. I think it's fair to say that Yemen went into this civil war not in a great place economically. Exactly. You're, you're saying that the economic repercussions now from the civil war could last 20 years or more. Um, what does that what does that mean for the future of this place? The future of Yemen looks very different than it um, would have without the escalation of conflict in 2015. Um, the economic future we estimate that between 2015 and 2019, there's about a 90 billion dollar reduction in economic activity, which is huge. Yemen's a big place. Hmm. People don't realize, I think, how large it is. It's about population-wise the size of Texas, so it's not a small kind of uh, uh, place. It's a it's it's a place that's kind of geographically isolated a bit. It's against a, a Gulf, and it has it's surrounded by desert and kind of largely. So it's a place that's um, populated but uh, isolated. So economically. They rely on trade for food imports. They rely on um, oil exports for revenue. And so 
this conflict has decimated infrastructure, the long-term um, human development potential for the country. And that's what the UN is trying to do. They're trying to move towards a peace settlement, and they're trying to move towards um, you know, getting humanitarian assistance into the conflict to help people who need it most. Well, Jonathan, I won't see the headlines about Yemen the same way again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Ryan. Jonathan Moyer directs DU's Frederick S. Party Center for International Futures. He has studied the human, social, and economic economic costs of the civil war in Yemen. When we learned that singer and actress Doris Day had died Monday, we went looking for any Colorado connections she had, and we found one in a 1975 TV special. My special guest star, that Colorado cutie... John Dutchendorf, also known as John Denver. Now, when you put Doris Day and John Denver together, things are bound to get perky. In fact, they sang a medley of six songs, all with the word sunshine in them. In light of Day's death at age 97, we chose the most reflective number, one that John Denver fans will no doubt recognize. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry Sunshine on the water so lovely, oh so lovely, sunshine almost always makes me high, makes me high. John Denver and Doris Day from her 1975 TV special, Doris Day Today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'd tell a tale Sure to make you smile It's graduation season, and we are dipping into commencement speeches across the state. This past Saturday, Dr. Gloria Beam was the keynote speaker at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, She's an orthopedic surgeon in the Valley who's had Olympians as clients. In the days leading up to this event, I was thinking about what words of wisdom I might offer as an orthopedic surgeon. When you saw that it was me addressing you today rather than Elon Musk, Bill Gates, or Oprah, I'm sure you were too. (laughs) Dr. Beam said as a kid she was pathologically shy and bullied because of it. When she was 16, she was in an accident that resulted in more knee surgeries than she could count. That's when everything came into focus for her. When I told my own orthopedist that I wanted to be like him, he said, well, you can't. Women are not strong enough to be orthopedic surgeons. It's true. (laughs) So I joined a gym that day and became a bodybuilder. Thank you. I didn't want to hear that I couldn't do what I wanted because I was a woman or wasn't strong enough. When interviewing for a spot to an esteemed orthopedic residency 
years later after receiving my medical degree, I was told by the male medical director that there were no women in this program because, again, women aren't strong enough to be orthopedic surgeons. I had heard these words so many times, every interview I went, and I was tired of it. So I challenged him to an arm wrestling contest. (laughs) I told him that if I lost, I would leave the interview right now. But if I won, he had to treat me like every other male at this interview. I think everyone in the room was surprised when I beat him handily. (laughs) Although... Truthfully, I think I could have beat Arnold Schwarzenegger because the amount of adrenaline in my blood was enormous. I was offered a spot in this program, but I have to admit, it felt slightly gratifying when I turned him down. I ended up being offered a spot at one of the best orthopedic hospitals in the nation and went to Columbia Presbyterian in New York City. Five years later, I really wanted to train with the renowned sports medicine pioneer, Dr. Freddie Fu, at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Sports Medicine. I became the first woman in his program. And finally, I became the specialist in a field where at the time, less than 1% were women. The reason I tell you these stories is that you have to go after the future that you want and persist. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have the right attributes or the right gender, or the right nationality. You have to go for whatever it is in life that you want. You have to follow your passion. Dr. Beam went on to work for Team USA at three Olympic and two Paralympic Games. She says it was her father who taught her to dream big. You see, he wanted to be a doctor too, but the Holocaust derailed his plans. He'd survived several concentration camps, including Auschwitz. He had very little education, needed to learn English and a trade to take care of a family in America. So on my medical school graduation day, I sincerely felt like this was for both of us. When my name was called and I took the stage, I shook the dean's hand, accepted my diploma, and looked out into the crowd to meet my father's gaze. Beside my overjoyed mother, I saw an empty seat. As I continued across the stage, I could feel my heart sinking. My dad missed it. This moment I was so proud of achieving, not just for me, but for him as well. As I neared the end of the stage, my eyes already brimming with tears, I saw someone out of the corner of my eye. There he was. He wasn't in his seat because he snuck behind the stage. (laughs) He wanted to look in my eyes if if that diploma reached my hand. I don't even know how to describe the look, the gaze, the feeling that we exchanged in that moment. I can't tell you what it meant to me. And it continues to serve as an anchor. Dr. Gloria Beam and some of her commencement address at Western Colorado University in Gunnison over the weekend. We'll highlight other graduation ceremonies around the state in the weeks ahead. The Hollywood blacklist began in 1947 when 10 writers and directors were accused of having ties to the Communist Party. One by one, they were called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. The Red Scare was on, and in the end, dozens of entertainers were blacklisted. Among them, the parents of our next guest, Lisa Guilford of Denver. She calls herself a red diaper baby. 
Guilford is a former Colorado film commissioner, and next month she begins editing a documentary about her family. And welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Your parents were both actors. Your mother, Madeline Lee, had been a child actress in New York, performed on Broadway, on radio. In 1949, she married your stepfather, Jack Guilford, who became a well-known character actor in the 1960s. Before we get to the blacklist, just tell us briefly about their careers. Well, my mother had started on Broadway as Tiny Tim. She was four years old. She didn't even read by then, but the real Tiny Tim was killed the night before opening on the Elevated in New York. And my mother was sitting in the front row, and she had beautiful blonde hair, and she became Tiny Tim. Oh, my goodness. And she worked in radio. Of course, radio was very big in those days. She worked in radio and on Broadway until she was like 15, 16 years old. And so my uh, stepfather, Jack, worked his way up. In those days, he only had vaudeville. So maybe you did six, seven shows a day. You had Uncle Milty, Milton Berle. You had Frank Sinatra. They all were doing vaudeville. There wasn't any TV. And Jack got his start that way in what I have to imagine is just an exhausting pace. Six shows a day. Yeah. And where did his career go after vaudeville? It was interesting. His career went to live theater because he was an actor. And in those days, there was something called the music tents all over the East Coast and Michigan and places. And they employed so many actors, so many good actors. So Jack was able to work as a stage actor and do his comedy routine. He did his comedy routine at very early on at a place called Cafe Society in Manhattan. And he roomed with Billie Holiday. Do you remember him telling you jokes? No, he was uh, – comedians are very shy at home. Huh. But when people would come over, he did. A, he started by doing imitations, Rudy Valley, Charlie Chaplin. So he did facial imitations. People would come over and say, do Rudy Valley or do this person or that person. <laughs> but when he was home, he was painfully shy and quiet, lovely, lovely person. But at home, comedians – don't tell jokes to their family. <laughs> they were also known, your parents, for their social and political activism. Yes, actually, my mother more than, than Jack to begin with. She was part of the Lincoln Brigade early on. And at 14, she was organizing her all-girls high school, where Carl Reiner's wife went with her. And they were organizing to show people about fascism in Europe. At 14 years old, she was a born organizer. It sounds like she might have gotten your father more into the political activism. Absolutely. She hired, hired, I use that term loosely because nobody got paid at the political benefits. Uh, She hired an unknown, very little known actor, comedian named Jack Guilford to perform at progressive liberal parties, mostly in New York, and fell madly in love with him and ran away with him. And they both at least took a look at communism and how how it might solve the ills of the world. Actually, my brothers and I have been talking about whether they were card-carrying members of the Communist Party. Mm. I don't know and I don't care because communism is not illegal in the United States, and it wasn't then. It was not illegal to be a communist. It probably was illegal to overthrow the government violently, 
But when they asked my father years later, did you want to overthrow the government violently? He said, no, just gently. <laughs> In 1953, the dancer and choreographer Jerome Robbins, probably best known for his work on West Side Story, was called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he named names, including your mother's. He said that he had been a member of the Communist Party and that your mother was as well. It sounds like this is still the fodder for debate in your family. But your mother was interviewed about this for a PBS documentary about Robbins. Let's listen to that. Someone called me and said, put on your radio, Jerry Robbins is naming you. And um, our phone didn't ring for three months after that. That's how scared people were, figuring the FBI had my phone tapped. And we did not have any TV or film work. And we managed on mostly on unemployment insurance. My goodness, you sound so much like your Mother, mom. I look like her, too. What do you remember about that time? I remember being followed to school. Tuesdays was our day. The FBI followed my brothers and I to school. We went to school at Little Red Schoolhouse in Greenwich Village. It was about half a mile down Bleecker Street, and they would follow us. And when I'd come home, I'd say, hey, Ma, they followed us. And I was like six, seven years old. And she goes, yeah, it's okay. So you got an escort. What have you learned since about why the heck they'd be following the kids? If you ask me what I've learned in retrospect, I probably have a little of that PTSD going, you know, because I haven't really thought about it. But when the doorbell would ring in the afternoon and I was home, my mother would scream from the other room, don't answer it. But if you do, I'm the babysitter. Now, first of all, your mother's just lied. And you know you're not supposed to lie. And second of all, the doorbell ringing was such an a horrible experience because you hear things. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, internet or anything. So you heard your parents on landlines and you would hear, uh, oh, I saw so-and-so on the unemployment. Oh, my God, so-and-so just moved to Mexico. Oh, my God, so-and-so's in jail. You would hear as a child. These were the conversations that you would hear on the telephone. And so... You didn't know really what your parents had done that was wrong because they're your parents and you love them. But you kind of felt like a pariah in a a situation that you didn't know. And now I look back and I say, my God, the government of the United States went haywire. After Robin's testimony, your parents expected that they too would be subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, But I understand that your mother did everything she could to avoid the process server. Yes. Like? Like live on Fire Island in the summertime. Everybody who went to Fire Island in the summertime was probably red or communist or liberal. I mean, it had good people that never got blacklisted like Carl Reiner and Norman Lear, but it also had people like my mother. And Fire Island had no cars and nobody wore shoes. So if you were on Fire Island and somebody got off the ferry and they were wearing shoes, they were probably a subpoena server. And this also explains why your mom would have said things like, if there's someone at the door, tell them I'm the babysitter. Yeah, because you just you wanted they tried to serve uh, Jack many times. I mean, they tried everything to serve people because they wanted to get them to name names. 
I think the process server eventually found your mom on Fire Island. He found her the third she, Dolores Scotty, was wearing shoes. And we were coming home from the beach, and Carl Reiner came running out of his bungalow, and he said, Madeline, Madeline, she's on the island. And we were walking home. I was having my little brother in the wagon, and my mother had my little infant brother Sam in her arms. And she approached our little bungalow, and the subpoena service said, Madeline Lee. And my mother said, get off the property. You are trespassing. And she took my little brother Sam, her infant son, and kind of flung him at the subpoena server. So to this day, we say my brother Sam was probably uh, made subversive at a very early age. <laughs> that he was actually the one served. Yes. Our guest is Lisa Guilford, former Colorado Film Commissioner. We're talking about her parents, Jack and Madeline Guilford. They were both actors and in the 1950s, both accused of being communists and blacklisted. Lisa is working on a film about it. In August of 1955, your mother went before the committee in a New York courtroom She was asked if she knew members of the Communist Party in the unions in particular, so Actors' Equity and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. In 2017, you and others read from the transcript to mark the 70th anniversary of the Hollywood Blacklist. Let's listen to your mother's defiant answer to the committee's questioning. I am declining on the basis of the First Amendment that you are prying into my personal affairs, beliefs, and opinions, and on the basis of the Fourth Amendment that this is an illegal search and seizure of my property and deprivation by due process of the law of the only thing I have to sell in this industry, my talent and my good name. I also decline on the basis of the Eighth Amendment that this is cruel and unusual punishment that you are inflicting without due process of law and on the basis of the Fifth Amendment that you may not compel me to be a witness against myself. This is like a game of tag where you try to be as candid as possible and three congressmen are standing there waiting to say you waived your privilege. That is not fair. You spoke of being candid. And so let me ask you a candid question. Are you a member of the Communist Party? You know, every November I go into a little booth and I mark a secret ballot and I prize that very highly as part of the American way of life. And I believe that that question relates strictly to that. Most people know from my public activities, and as you can see, I am a very talkative person and very willing to state my opinion, but not not under compulsion and to a nefarious purpose on the part of this committee. That's Lisa Guilford reading the words of her mother, Madeline Lee, before the House Un-American Activities Committee. How was it to bring life to those words? I hadn't obviously been there when she did that originally. And that last part, she says, I am not Joan of Arc. Recant is not part of my vocabulary. (laughs) And when you think about my mother, she had three of us under the age of 10, My father was blacklisted, but it's very important, Ryan, that you understand that the New York people that were brought before HUAC, when Senator McCarthy said, hey, let's go to New York, let's get some more commies, 23 people testified, 22 did not name names, 22 did not recant, only one, and he never worked again, because it's very important to know that my father was able 
to work in the theater. Equity as a union, never blacklisted. As a matter of fact... That was was in contrast, I think you're saying, to the screen actors. SAG, which was run, of course, by our friend Ronald Reagan at that time. He was the head of SAG. But equity had had it in the contract. You could not blacklist. So when they would pick it, my father, which they did for the Metropolitan Opera, when they would picket him when he was in Flatermouse, Mr. Bing, who ran the opera, would come out and say, we in the theater do not blacklist. So hmm. my father was able, like a lot of people weren't, to maintain his sense of decency and how he felt about himself because he didn't make much money, but he always worked. Did your uh, father, did Jack Guilford ever have to testify? You know, I wish I could answer that question. My brother and I fight about it all the time. I think he was set to testify, and whatever year it was, he was in Charlie's Aunt in Hyannisport, and I think he got out of it. Hmm. I don't know, but of course we know how he would testify. And I think it's important to know that the people in New York all had the same attorney. His name was Leonard Boudin. Leonard would come to our house every single night with all these people, and he would rehearse, rehearse, rehearse how they could work against HUAC being so nasty. In their testimony. In their testimony. My goodness. I want to play a wonderful clip of your stepfather doing a public service announcement on television, encouraging people to read. Uh, It was sponsored by the American Library Association and the National Book Committee. It's from the 1960s, but um, it's just surprisingly relevant today. This is a rectangular, mind-filling word containing whatchamacallit. Called a book. B-O-O-K book. To read. Read? Does anybody still do that old-fashioned chore in these modern days of television, radio, moving pictures, battery power ponies and dolls that snort? You betcha. There's a whole lot of reading going on behind our backs. Done, for instance, by quarterbacks. Like Y.A. Tittle, who's not afraid to tackle a book. And Ricky Nelson, who can rock it, studies all about the rocket from a book. And you all remember young Abe Lincoln. He read books and became president the American way. So don't be a blockhead, know-nothing, never-reading, uninformed Pinocchio of a child. For heaven's sake, read, read. That rhymes with lead, which is what you'll do if you read a fairy tale, how to sail, science fiction, English fiction, European history. I mean, who cares about Abraham Lincoln if Ricky Nelson is reading? Cool, right? Oh, thank you for that. That was a gift. I haven't heard that. But don't you think it's a little ironic that Jack Guilford uh, was the spokesman for the Cracker Jacks, as most people who are of my age and little younger, Cracker Jack Man. And if people see him, even now, they say, oh, he was the Cracker Jack Man. There was nothing more American than Cracker Jacks. He died in 1990. Your mother died in 2008. Were they bitter about the blacklist and the effect that it had on their lives? I, I don't think I'd use the word bitter, but did they ever forget? No. And what they instilled in us as children then going forward was this 11th commandment, thou shalt not think. And most people don't think about that, but to us, even the children of blacklisted actors who finked, like Burl Ives and Lee J. Cobb, Lee J. Cobb especially, I couldn't talk to his daughter, Julie, for years, even though we had nothing to do with it because her father had, quote, finked. Had finked. Well, speaking of that, uh, we talked earlier about Jerome Robbins, the choreographer and director. He had named your mother and several others in testimony before that House Un-American Activities Committee. 
I have to think he wasn't very popular in your household. And, and yet... Your stepfather ended up working with him in the Broadway production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Good story. Frank Rich has this wonderful thing about Forum was dismally horrible. There wasn't a thing right about the show Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. It just didn't have an opening. It didn't have a closing. It had nothing. So Hal Prince, who was the producer, hired Jerome Robbins to doctored the show before it opened on Broadway. But he was scared to death to tell both Zero Mustel, my father's best friend, Jack's best friend. Famous for Fiddler on the Roof. And Forum. And he he said, how can we tell Zero that we've just hired Jerome Robbins to fix the show? Well, he, he went to Zero. He said, Z, we had to hire Jerry Robbins. If you want to run, if you want this show to run and you want to make a living, we have to have a, a brilliant doctor like Jerry Robbins. So Z said, listen, it's okay with me, I suppose, but let's go talk to Jack, knowing, of course, that my mother had been named by Jerry Robbins. So they went into Jack's room and Jack immediately called my mother and he said, Madeline, they've just hired Jerry Robbins. I'm going to quit the show. And she said, this is a quote, don't be a schmuck, Jack. If Warner Brothers called, you'd work for them, wouldn't you? Mm. So they hired Jerry, and on the stage was Jerry Robbins, Hal Prince, Zero, and Jack. And Jerome Robbins stuck out his hand to Zero, and Zero said, I'll work with you, I'll take your direction, but I will never shake your hand. That's how deep the blacklist years had been for these people. And how profound the scars were. Yes. That is Lisa Guilford of Denver, remembering her late parents, actors Jack Guilford and Madeline Lee Guilford, who were blacklisted in the 1950s. We spoke in December. Next month, Lisa begins editing a documentary about her family. And finally today, we're preparing to head west. Next month, Colorado Matters will broadcast from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And on Friday night, June 21st, we'll record an episode of the show at the Avalon Theater just down the road. My guest will be best-selling Colorado author Peter Heller. He has a new wilderness thriller called The River. Tickets are on sale now at CPR.org. We'll also showcase the winner of our Solo on the Slope music contest. We got around 50 submissions, and I'll announce the winner Friday. Until then, I want to share some of the other entries that delighted us. Banjo player Jenny Hill Pankratz of Gunnison submitted an original song and shared her love of the Western Slope. I love it for all the open country, big open country, wild open country. I love it for the pristine country too, the places you can go hiking and feel like you're one of the first people to be there in a really long time. Pankratz runs a music school in Gunnison teaching string instruments to adults and kids. Here's a taste of her song about a tree in the country and a tree in the city. This is Happy Trees. She listens. 
Jenny Hill Pankratz with her song Happy Trees. It's a favorite entry in our Solo on the Slope music contest. We'll announce the winner Friday and get tickets to our event at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction, which tapes June 21st at CPR.org. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.